Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on December the 13th, 2015. This is part three on this con of COP21 basically, which is a, a con in itself with a much deeper agenda behind it all. And we're run by um, a secretive group, a group, as I said before, who have, has used many front organizations down through history. And you can actually label them off in the 20th century quite easily. In fact, you find the FBI even had lists of, for instance, communist front groups and so on. But this group ran communism and it ran uh, every other totalitarian regime. It ran, to an extent, Christianity for an awful long time and used it to expand the British Empire. Uh, and when that had fulfilled its function, they simply demolished Christianity. They do that. They, they demolish what they've used in the past. And those who help this agenda should always remember that. Now, I think Orwell said that speaking the truth in an age of universal deceit is considered a revolutionary act. And I can add to that, too, that the way things are today, we really are so close to laws being passed where speaking the truth is an illegal act. And I'm not kidding about that. That's coming very quickly, in fact. The group that used Britain, that many, many names, many front organizations uh, during its lifetime, eventually consolidated into the name Royal Institute for International Affairs, private organization that wanted to basically use the British Empire system to expand into a global governmental system. They could have used any other country, but they decided to use Britain. And there were rich financiers, of course, naturally. Uh, they had uh, an inner party at the top, uh, very secretive, and the outer party. The outer party has become known, of course, mainly as a Council on Foreign Relations in the United States and elsewhere in the world now, too. But they're, they're across the whole planet today. Their members are in government, in bureaucracies, and uh, in all the media, etc., etc., the other branch that they control, the trilateral group, uh, are the guys who run the Bank for International Settlements and the IMF and uh, overseas economic uh, groups for funding so-called third world countries, using your tax money, giving out loans and all that. And uh, they have it pretty well all sewn up. But they also want to drastically reduce the population of the world. And people never really question why in, say, European countries, for instance, where all the statistics are never argued about, this has proven over and over and over that they say that the European peoples, the, the white European peoples, the native peoples across Europe, are drastically declining. And uh, I've gone through the history of that. Remember going to CuttingThroughTheMedias.com and use the archives because I've given talks on that from big players of their day 
and telling the people to stop having so many children. And then when you obey them and you're good and all the rest of it, they say, oh, there's not enough of you to pay off national debts. We've got to import people from third world countries. Even though they admit in their own, again, studies and statistics, uh, that the third world countries are vastly expanding in population growth. So why are they trying to eradicate European? That's another story in itself. And many things now you can't even talk about. You can't, you can't talk about it. The closer this agenda gets to total success, which is pretty well there, uh, the more so are you, are you censored on what you can actually say about it all. But you get the average media, which is, again, completely controlled. They know what to say. They're all on board with this COP21. Isn't that rather odd, too, that most of the media uh, are... All, all for totalitarianism and the management, the micromanagement of individuals' lives. Now, what really fascinated the precursor of the Royal Institute for National Affairs, the, the group that uh, had many names, is even secretive towards uh, those in Parliament who were not part of the group, and that was the Lord Alfred Milner Group. Carl Quigley, again, has recorded much of their history since he was the archivist for this group. They have their own separate history because they've been behind it. They actually admit they've been behind most of the history for well over 100 years, 150 years, and probably longer, actually, before Milner came along. And um, you'll find that uh, they're unceasing in their big agenda, their global agenda and the complete management of the world's resources, uh, all energy naturally, which they want to own themselves, on behalf of you. you know, they, they can be the caretakers for you. They're self-appointed guardians of the universe, you might say. Very elitist. They've admired and funded all totalitarian regimes in the past. The reason being that they've always been fascinated by basically subduing the individual, and making him or her merge as a cog in the machine and serving the great society, as they call it. That's why they like instant obedience in their populations. That's why Roosevelt's wife, for instance, FDR's wife, went over to Russia to see Pavlov. She loved Pavlov because of his, his work on controlling the minds of people and so on. And she mentioned that the children on their way to school in Russia really impressed her because unlike the American children or Western children, they weren't playing and laughing spontaneously. They, uh, they were, but they were very orderly and obedient and quiet. That's she thought was, for, was the greatest thing, and that's what she wanted for the whole of the world, you see. These are all totalitarian people, and they all have something in common, which I won't touch on, but they have something in common, and they've been revolutionaries for an awful long time. They're intergenerational revolutionaries, for those who haven't quite got it. When you go into the, the big revolutions of the 1800s, and even before that, you'll find that the, the secret groups that, that were behind it and pushing it and so on, they all, they all belong to, say, for instance, Freemasonic societies. And some of the Freemasonic books of the dig openly admit they were behind many of the revolutions of the past. 
And what you'll find, like Albert Pike, the so-called Pope of Freemasonry, the, the kind of revolutionary branch of the Scottish Rite Freemasonry, which wasn't Scottish at all in, in, in actuality, but he said we never begin a premature revolution. Very important to remember that. It takes years to prepare for revolution. And if you want the public to be on your side, you must prepare the public's mind, or their minds collectively, I suppose. Or it could be mind collectively. Anyway, you've got to prepare that mind to accept when you, that the ultimate revolution as you go on down the road. It takes years to prepare them. And you've had years and years and years, your whole life long, and your parents before you, of the big agenda of depopulation, which turned into the cover uh, of environmentalism and into the cover of climate change, etc. The excuses, excuses, excuses to brainwash the folk through scary scenarios, to get them all ready for this big move to give up all of your rights and freedoms and allow the so-called experts, you see, the masters of the universe, to micromanage your lives. Awfully important to remember that. Now, there's a, a good article on Maurice Strong. And you'll find this organization of revolutionaries, they give you the heroes to follow down through the ages. They create the superstars, you might say. They create them with the big machinery they have to create the, the, the superstars, whether it's scientists or whatever, whoever they want to push us a, a particular agenda, and mainly political and social and so on. And they created Maurice Strong, a guy with a, a revolutionary history in his family. In fact, Maurice Strong, in one of the articles I have here, I've read again, go into the archives, cuttingthroughmedias.com, and look up Maurice Strong and some of his history. He mentioned himself when he was in China that he put flowers on the grave of, I think it was his aunt, I'm not quite sure. It was a relative of his for sure, who was a, a, a female revolutionary advisor to Mao Zedong. The main advisor, buried right next to Mao Zedong. But there's even more to Maurice Strong than that, so I won't go into it right now. But uh, he was actually picked up by David Rockefeller and groomed for his position. And Rockefellers, again, uh, were the guys who were put into the United States to take over and manage the big, massive monopolies of power. And if you have financial power in the States or anywhere else, you have total political power as well. But anyway, they don't mention this, this article about the Rockefeller connection, I don't think. But it's interesting nonetheless. And it says, Maurice Strong, father of the globalist eco-control movement, dies. And December 2nd, it was from, and that was LifeSite News. Maurice Strong, widely considered the creator of the global environmental movement and its attendant population control agenda. And he's not really the creator of it. He was one of a, of a group of them, in fact. But he was made into the superstar frontman, you see. He died in 86 on Saturdays. The world leaders prepared to conversion Paris for the UN COP21 climate change summit. This is a 10-day meeting to draft an international treaty on, <laughs> again, the, the, the caveat climate change. You might call it a Trojan horse. That's really what it is. Began Monday and arguably is a direct result of Strong's decades-long relentless behind-the-scenes lobbying. Indeed, the UN Environmental Agency's announcement of Strong's November 28th death, Executive Director Achim Steiner stated that Strong will be forever 
remembered for placing the environment on the international agenda and at the heart of development. Uh, former Governor General Adrian Clarkson quipped on his 85th birthday that Strong invented the environment. While her husband, and he, he didn't really, but he was the one who was chosen, as I say, to push stuff. A big, big, massive group behind him uh, had already been preparing the minds of the public to get them ready for this whole thing. So you just accept it as a natural evolution of society. But it says, uh, while her husband, philosopher John Rawlson Saul, in a glowing memorial in Canada's Globe and Mail, filed November 30 from Paris, described Strong as the St. Paul of the environmental movement. But Strong's lifelong cause is a dark and sinister side, summed up succinctly by Campaign Life Coalition President Jim Hughes. This whole environmental movement is about depopulating the earth. Always was, though. That was always the agenda, you see. Since indeed in the 1960s, as Deputy Minister in Canadian Government, Strong caused an uproar by suggesting there may come a need to require permits for bearing children. That was controversial and had been used to the controversy ever since, he told the Guardian newspaper 2012. Over the years, I've noticed that this is one way of getting attention. And then they give the usual nonsense of his uh, childhood. By his own admission, Strong's impoverished depression year of childhood in Manitoba and the influence of a confirmed socialist teacher left him, frankly, very radical. Now, I wonder who his teacher was, eh? Is quoted by Ronald Bailey in the September 97 National Review. This became a theme in his life, the need to deal with poverty, he says. It's utter lies, as folks, you know, noted Rawlston saw. Mr. Strong had been brought up in poverty, and over the years he'd seen its effects in the world. But while in the 1976 Maclean's interview, Strong described himself as a socialist in ideology, he added that he was a capitalist in methodology. He was certainly a multimillionaire, you know. But again, he was picked up by Rockefeller and groomed from, from, from a very young man onwards for his position. He was remarkably successful, won by all accounts, becoming a self-made millionaire. A self-made, you see, that's just the usual Disney version. By age 35, he was CEO of the Montreal-based Power Corps. Now, Power Corps has picked so many of the prime ministers for Canada, you almost lose count of them. It's a very powerful organization set in Canada. Uh, again, big, big um, ties, if not even set up by Standard Oil, Rockefeller Group, and so on. Uh, so they're all intertwined, these people, folks. They give you your leaders. So, and thereafter, ran a handful of other oil and energy companies, including a three-year stint piloting Ontario Hydro in the early 90s. Well, his, his three-year stint at Ontario Hydro wasn't that at all. He was brought over from the United Nations and put it as head of Ontario Hydro in order to privatize it. Because part of their whole agenda is the privatization of all energy to max out the profits, jack up all the prices, and make you use a lot less. Because you see, if you control of all energy, you control all the people and the way they're going to live. That was part of the depopulation agenda, actually. Strong was adept at switching focus from his corporate affairs to his public sector endeavors, which began earnest in 1966. By 1968, he oversaw the founding of the Canadian International Development Agency under Liberal Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Now, Liberal it can also be used with a C in front of it. 
He leapfrogged from there to organizing the UN's first environmental conference in Stockholm 72, where in his opening address he hinted at the need for national population policies. Later that year, he was appointed head of the newly formed United Nations Environment Program, headquartered in Nairobi. Amazing how, you know, when you're, you're, you're being chosen to be a superstar and lead something uh, for, for the global, uh, again, lords of the universe, uh, how you just happen to walk into these prime jobs, eh? In 76, Trudeau summoned Strong back to Canada to run the country's newly founded Petro-Canada, which he did for two years. He returned to the UN in 1984. By the time he organized the 1992 UN Air Summit in Rio de Janeiro, Strong was the undisputed leading force in creating a complex web of international agreements and expectations that we identify as international environmentalism, according to Ralston Saul. Well, actually, uh, the, the, the Rio Summit that Strong prattled on about and read from and so on was really drafted up by David Rockefeller. And it goes into abortion, occult, and pagan nature worship. They had a Maclean's magazine out some years ago, and I read from it on the air, and um, it was with the Baca Grande ranch that you had. And uh, again, it was, in, it was in some kind of collusion with Rockefeller again. They happened to be sitting on the biggest underwater aqueduct in the whole of the U.S. You were sitting right on top of it. But that's just coincidence, of course. It says, but that was hidden behind euphemisms and disguises, including the term sustainable development, as pointed out by Rawlson's soul. Perhaps that's because, by design, it's meant to represent an infinitely elastic concept that could morph to include whatever measures allegedly were needed to curb population growth for the sake of the environment. This is uh, the UN's Brundtland Commission, of which Strong was a member, issued the 1987 our Common Future Report, which promoted sustainable development, according to Peter Foster in the National Post. He said that free markets were uh, unsustainable. The term came up over and over at Strong's Rio Air Summit, where, writes Kaysen, the environmental population controllers hit the big time. Their summit issued Agenda 21, a 40-chapter manifesto that called repeatedly for sustainable development, but which Kaysen wrote it did not define. It did, however, state clearly that the growth of world population caused increasingly severe stress on the life-supporting capacities of the planet, and it called for measures to bring about demographic transition. Code for reducing births, Kaysen observed. Strong recognized the strategic significance of the radical feminist movement. Well, he didn't just, just do that because it's the same group over and over that ran all these, still runs all these organizations. Case in the notes. And amongst his prominent appointments in Rio was feminist Bella Abzug and her Women's Environment and Development Organization. Agenda 21 was replete with references to empowering women and reproductive health. Code for access to contraception and abortion and sex education. But really it's for real, but it's mandatory abortion, you see. According to Stephen Mosher of the Population Research Institute, Strong pushed Agenda 21 aggressively as assistant to the UN Secretary General. As a result, one and a half thousand cities and towns around the world adopted its measures. Also called for global governance, as will be seen later. This is in Gaia and the New Age Mecca. Meanwhile, Gaia worshippers joined radical feminist environmentalists to complete Rio's unholy trio, and Strong again took a leadership role. Strong and his wife Hannah bought a 200,000-acre Bacca ranch near 
Creston, Colorado, 1978, and created the New Age Manitou Center, which Kaysen called a huge cult mecca for New Age devotees. The Creston Baca community is described by the Creston Institute as as the largest international interfaith ecumenical community in North America, while Hannah Strong, according to Creston's website, calls it a demonstration project where we focus on the human spirit, consciousness, and sustainability. (laughs) And sustainability is a good name. Moreover, the Air Charter, which Strong launched in 2000 with former president of the USSR and founder of Green Cross International, Michael Gorbachev, as his father underscored the religious basis to environmentalism, according to Kaysen. And no wonder, because Michael Gorbachev in one of his books also said the same thing. They would create a green religion. He said it would be a religion, an, a form of earth worship, he said, meaning the indoctrination of the children into this, this new concept of earth worship. And your secondary, as a human being, your secondary um, relationship to in other words, the earth, the earth comes first, you come second or third or even further down there. Well, it depends on your status, naturally. Then the push for global governance. Strong organized the Earth Council Institute the same year as Rio, bringing on board members of the Club of Rome, on which he himself was a member, according to National Review's Billy. Amongst its many polemics, the Club of Rome's 1972 paper called Limits to Growth warned that the Earth's population would be unsustainable by 2030 unless drastic measures for environmental protection were adopted. Strong himself echoed this dire prediction in his 2001 book, Where on Earth Are We Going? I know where he should be going, but there, there, and he said the idea that two-thirds of the world's population could perish by 2031 was a glimmer of hope for the future of our species and its potential for regeneration. You remember through all of this too, in this top elitist group, folks, they believe they are the supreme beings of the world. And uh, this is all for the rest of the population down below them. Uh, you'll do what they say. Uh, you will uh, serve them, and you better serve them willingly, or appear to do so. And you'll probably get sterilized, you see, because you're an inferior type of human being. I'll put this link up tonight, and you can read the article for yourself. It goes on quite a ways, too, this article. It's quite good, and uh, there's a lot more I could certainly add to. Maurice Strong, as I say, that's not in here, but um, it's, I don't have time to do all that tonight, naturally. And then you have the Club of Rome that was mentioned. Again, the big think tank that was given the job of finding something to unify the world and give them the power at the top to control it, you see. And I'll put a link to this this article here too. It says, in 1991, the Club of Rome published the first global revolution. That was a big book where they summed it all up. And um, they'd they, they give you the whole reason why you would have to start depopulating and all the rest of it. But it says here, the Club of Rome raised considerable public attention with this report back in, uh, I think it was 1972, called Limits to Growth, which has sold 30 million copies in more than 30 translations, making it the best-selling environmental book in world history. Published in 1972 and presented for the first time at the International Students Committee, ISC Annual Management Symposium in St. Gallen, Switzerland, it predicted that economic growth could not continue indefinitely because of the limited availability of natural resources, particularly oil. 
and again, to that speaking, proved to be a farce. They came out too with the idea that uh, there'd be a, um, uh, oil peaks and you were past it and all that, and you were going into poverty in the future. Now we've got such a glut of oil, I don't want to do with it. But lies are what they always put out there to get what they want. In '73, the oil crisis increased public concern about this problem, though they made you think it was a problem. However, even before Limits to Growth was published, Edward Pestle and uh, Mihalo uh, Mezarovic of Case Western Reserve University had begun work on a far more elaborate model. It distinguished 10 world regions and involved 200,000 equations compared with 1,000 in Meadows' model. The search had the full support of the club and the final publication, Mankind at the Turning Point, was accepted as official second report to the Club of Rome in 1974. In addition to providing more refined regional breakdown, Pestle and Mazarovic had succeeded in integrating social as well as technical data. The second report revised the predictions of the original limits to growth and gave a more optimistic prognosis of the future for the environment, noting that many of the factors were human within human control and therefore the environment and economic catastrophe were preventable or avoidable, hence the title. Now, they were given the task, I guess I've said before, of coming up with an idea to unite the, the, the planet, you see. And it looked at everything under the sun, like 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 even aliens from outer space are attack, you know, from outer, anything at all, because all have to give up national sovereignty and come into global governance to, to save us all. It's always to save us all, you see. It's, it's got to be done that way to get all the rights taken away from you. And it says, with, with the disappearance of the traditional enemy, the temptation is to use religious or ethnic minorities as scapegoats especially those whose differences from the majority are disturbing. Every state has been so used to classifying its neighbours as friend or foe that the sudden absence of traditional adversaries has left governments and public opinion with a great void to fill. New enemies have to be identified, new strategies imagined, and absence of traditional adversaries um, and, new, and new weapons devised, I should say, and searching for a common enemy. So this is what they came up with. 1972, and searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite. And actually, this is from 72, but actually, we, we put it out in a more definite format, 91. It says. But it says, um, and searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like, would fit the bill. It would fit the bill to get totalitarian government. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which must be confronted by everyone together. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap which we have already warned readers about, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes. And it's only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. You see, that's what it's all about. But not their humanity, your humanity, you see. In fact, this group might not even call you human. Now, to get back to Albert Pike, who said, We never begin or start a premature revolution. You've got to basically plow the ground, aerate the soil and so on, fertilize it. And then you've got to get it all ready for 
the seed so it can grow, etc. And what I'm talking about here, naturally, is our minds. You really prepare the minds of the public through scary scenarios and things like that, to, so that when uh, they, they build up the big mantra of whatever it happens they're pushing at that time, you'll think it all quite natural. You have to go along with it. You're coerced into it. You're afraid, blah, blah. And here's all these self-professed heroes and know-it-alls that have all the answers, you see. And you, you basically put yourself under their authority. So in 1972, to coincide with the Stockholm Agreement and so on, they came out with Survival Spaceship Earth. Remory Strong, uh, and um, uh, there's quite a few other people involved in it too. Some of them you'll see at the end of the movie, uh, the documentary. You'll see their names, uh, and they're very familiar to even today. These characters live quite a long, long time, and it's always involved in the same things. But you'll find that here, some of the people here, for instance, that uh, were in this particular survival spaceship, Earth, heavily financed again. And these characters have infiltrated all your governments long ago and helped run them every ge- in every generation. And uh, they keep the, the same agenda going over and over. Well, one of them was Barbara Ward. You'll see in this movie, Survival Spaceship Earth. Uh, Baroness Jackson of Lodsworth, you see. Barbara Mary Ward, Baroness Jackson of Lodsworth, uh, from 1914 to 1981. She was a British economist, writer interested in the problems of developing countries. Eh? Just a natural, you know, altruistic person. She urged Western governments to share their prosperity with the rest of the world. Again, part of the communist ideology, you see. Which again, communism is a front for something else. You see, it's the same group actually around communism down through the ages and every other ism there is. It says, with the rest of the world and the 1960s, turned her attention to environmental questions as well. She was an early advocate of sustainable development before this term became familiar and was well known as a journalist, lecturer and a broadcaster. Ward was advisor to policymakers in the UK, the US and elsewhere. Policy advisor, just happened to just fall into the positions. And they're put in, of course. Uh, it says here she was born in uh, Heworth, York, in England, 23rd May 1914, but her family soon moved to Felixstowe. Her father was a solicitor, naturally, with Quaker tendencies, and the Quakers were heavily used for communist fronts as well. And we were infiltrated by the folk that ran communism. This is while her uh, mother was a devout Catholic, really. She attended a, a convent school before studying in Paris, and uh, then for some months at the Sorbonne before going on to Germany. Though she'd once planned to study modern languages, her interest in public affairs led to a degree course in politics, philosophy, and economics at Somerville College, Oxford University. It says here, After witnessing anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany, she began to help Jewish refugees and mobilize Roman Catholic support for any forthcoming UK war effort. Although she had initially been sympathetic to Hitler, as I said before, the, these folk are behind the big ism movement, communism, Nazism, and so on. The, the ones that where you must submerge your individuality and, and forgo it and become part of the mass, the obedient mass who serves the state. That's where you're going today, in fact. You see. 
This is with Christopher Dawson, the historian's leader and ward as secretary of the Sword of the Spirit, was established as an organization to bring together Catholics and Anakins opposing Nazism. It became a Roman Catholic group whose policies were promoted by the Dublin Review, which Dawson edited and for which Ward wrote regularly. So she was pro-Nazi initially, you see. During the Second World War, she worked for the Ministry of Information. Interesting, isn't it? Which is also where, of course, uh, I think um, you, you find that uh, George Orwell worked and many others worked here too. And it says here that uh, travel to Europe and the U.S. partly on the strength of her 1938 book called The International Shareout. That was you dishing out money across the planet. Jeffrey Crowther, editor of The Economist, offered her a job. She left the magazines in 1950, having risen to foreign editor, but continued to contribute articles throughout her life. And, of course, she even helped to run and take over the Christian values as kept changing them in wartime and so on. And they're famous for that, too. It says, uh, during this time, she's also president of the Catholic Women's League and popular panel member of the BBC's program, The Brains Trust. She was a supporter of the Marshall Plan, of a strong Europe, and of a European free trade area. It's all the same group, folks, Royal Institute of International Affairs, CFR, Trilateral, and so on, which are all front groups for, again, another, I'll just say, another thing. (laughs) Anyway, um, she helped to set up different organizations for to spread our tax money across the world, which you're doing right now. It's the same agenda you see under the environment now. And see what I'm saying? Before it was always to do you start bringing down the populations across the world, mainly in Europe to start with. And then, of course, uh, they just have abortion, monetary abortion, etc., etc. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the same thing with the, the, this, this idea at COP21 is to redistribute your money as you go down the hill, you see, into austerity, which is poverty, and they send your money across the world to their, again, their stooges in other countries that run them. I'll put this up tonight. So she's in that particular movie, as I've said before, and you hear her. You can, she can see this as one, one woman who's really passionately totalitarian. You know. And as I say, this was coincided, that movie, to come up with the Stockholm Agreement. Also, only one Earth, Stockholm in the beginning of modern environmental diplomacy. Such large-scale industrial pollution, the growing threat of nuclear radiation, documented mass destruction of entire ecosystems around the globe. In the 1960s, witnessed the advent of widespread international concern about global environmental crisis. As this heightened global awareness, and there was brainwashing uh, and, and, and skullduggery, triggered a modern environmental movement. It was the initiative of a small country in Scandinavia that laid the foundation for international cooperation on environmental matters. And that was the Stockholm Agreement. That's where they kicked it off. December 13th, December 1967, the proposal reached the UN General Assembly to organize a conference in order to facilitate coordination and to focus the interest of member countries on extremely complex problems related to the human environment. And so they used Sweden. And they eventually had the big, big international meeting uh, in Stockholm. And... Mentions the usual ones, Secretary General Maurice Strong, uh, when he was up at the United Nations at the time. Uh, so these guys are in out of politics and out of world government, which is the United Nations, and so on, and the big programs to to push you into the background, submerge with the masses, and serve the world state, and do what you're told. It goes through the whole 
um, again, scary scenario thing for you to give up your rights to experts, self-declared experts, mind you. Now, also, I'm going to put up tonight Carl Sverker Astrom, and uh, he was, it says, uh, he studied at Uppsala University, Bachelor of Arts, and he was a member of the National Student Association in Uppsala, an organization affiliated with the pro-Nazi International League of Sweden from 1932 to 1937. Following his studies, he was employed as an attaché at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Stockholm. From 1940 to 43, he served at the Swedish mission to the Soviet Union. See, they don't care. These guys, the totalitarian systems is what they love. They don't care. Even Carl Quigley said that with the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, history, he, was, he, was, he put out his own books. He said, we, we have members who are dictators, uh, Communists and so on. He says, we don't care. He said, they use them all because they're all fronts for this particular one organization. And he said here, he returned to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for he became the head of Division 1949. And um, it goes through his history here too. He was a friend of uh, Olaf Palmer, former Prime Minister of the Social Democratic Party. And um, he, goes, he wrote some books too, which are, he can almost came out, come out again to he wrote different books, and he came out as a homosexual in 2003 and so on. This is the kind of character that, that was used to bring in totalitarianism, basically. Now, jumping back again to preparing the field or the minds of the public for the next step and the next step too. Uh, back in the 60s onwards, you had masses of movies, movies just getting churned out uh, with scary scenarios. Fascinating, again, because fiction is the best way to brainwash us. You see, you're, 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 you might say that your firewall's down during it. You're not expecting to be attacked or manipulated through movies, but which you are incredibly much so. Anyway, it says, um, you had Buckminster Fuller book came out, Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth, 1968. You have the Club of Rome, of course, where it came up with their particular uh, thing too. And uh, again, humanity, therefore, is the enemy. Silent Green came out in the movie. And Silent Green, again, scary scenario, too many folk. Uh, and then they're reduced to eating this recycled human <laughs> human waste, you might say, which is humans themselves who are dead, uh, as food. And it was called Make Room, Make Room, was the actual book version, 1966. But the, the movie was came out to coincide again with Spaceship Earth. No Bleed of Grass, 1970. The book actually came out in 1956, but they made the movie in 1970 again. Prepare the minds of the public, you see. Uh, that's how you think, you see. You, you, you think you know things, but you can't really tell where you got all these ideas from. It's from all the movies you watch that prepares your mind. Logan's Run, 1976 again. The Omega Man, 1971. The Last Man, 64. And ZPG, Zero Population Growth, 1972. So, again, your, your minds are all prepared and well in advance for uh, the, for, the further brainwashing you're going to get and for all the laws you're going to sit back and just accept or put upon you. You'll think it's all quite natural. But you haven't reasoned through anything, never mind investigated anything. This article comes out to ban 
that's Ban Ki-moon, announces Climate Action 2016, partnership to maintain momentum after UN Climate Conference. And, and see, the whole point of this one was to, was to simply, actually it's a formality, this whole so-called meeting. Uh, it's, it's just a formality. It was all done by the Sherpas years ago, and the top politicians that go to put a show on it and for future history. You see, to write down that, that they all agreed at this meeting. No, they didn't. They'd agreed long before it. It's all done. It's just a big party time and a formality for the general public of the world to think it's all, it, well, they're really just debating, etc. No, it's all done, folks. And once they got on the books, then, which they have now, uh, it, then they simply expand it and expand all the laws and laws and laws. And they've got teeth in it now to punish anybody who doesn't go along with this, you see which is little, little old you and your little old shack or house that you live in and uh, how you're going to live and so on. But the children will be taught in school, even to the next step of totalitarianism and tyranny, and they'll grow up thinking it's all quite natural and they'll be very obedient, etc., etc. So the broad group of organizations will partner 2016 to maintain momentum for multi-stakeholder climate implementation. It says, I am heartened by the significant and growing coalitions that are emerging to tackle the challenges of climate change. Again, get back to their, their first agenda, folks. It, it, was, um, it wasn't the climate change at all. It was just the environment, but that didn't sink too well uh, over to, to the public. It didn't go down. And, uh, and so they had to change it to climate change. A big scary scenario. You don't want to die unless we give up all our rights, you see. So Mr. Bannon underlined the global event taking place in Paris on a day dubbed Action Day. And Secretary General is joined by groups such as the World Bank. See, the World Bank's part was set up again as a private institution by uh, the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the IMF and so on, the BIS. They're all the same groups run by the same guys at the start. The Global Environmental Facility and the Compact of Mayors across the world, you see, and Canada has got a Compact of Mayors. So it doesn't matter even if you think they're bickering about things. No, they're not. It's not a done deal. And even if they didn't do something on a federal level, this all going to be implemented by uh, your, local, your local area to your province or state, all the way up to the federal level. And she's on individuals including Michael Bloomberg, the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for Cities and Climate Change. Well, of course, see, it's amazing how these multi-billionaires who are part of a much bigger organization uh, can run uh, the whole planet, you see, and just know what to do, you see. It says, we'll co-sponsor a Climate Change 2016 Summit of Leaders from Government, Business, Cities and Localities, Civil Society, that's for NGOs, and Academia next 5th and 6th of May in Washington, D.C. And just like uh, the present meeting, COP21, uh, it's invitation only. It's not for the public. See, you, don't, you don't count, you're the proles, as George Orwell said. According to a press release issued by the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, it says the organizer of the conference, this high-level gathering will compre- uh, complement ongoing implementation efforts and catalyze actionable concrete uh, deliverables. <laughs> Hell, bureaucrat, right? Uh, uh, in specific high-value areas, including cities, land use, resilience, energy, transport, tools for decision-makers, and finance. The summit will show that the things that were talked here in Paris are actually happening on the ground. Bob Orr, Special Advisor to the Secretary General on Climate Change, told the UN News Centre in an interview. 
the number and depth of coalitions uh, that are organised to deliver action on climate change through forestry, through industry, through cities. All the different channels need to move forward as far as and as fast as they can. He added. So the general secretary general is not only ensuring we have this robust universal agreement, but that we have the coalition in the field to deliver the goods. Or noted that this meeting is taking place in the U.S. Capitol, as all the partners joining the secretary general at 2016 summit agreed that Washington D.C. is the best stop, as it's home to a number of important international institutions and financing vehicles, meaning that's the distributor tax money. Now, on to another article, French Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius. French, really? Revolutions high-bend all these weird names, eh? Called Thursday night a hard night at COP21, the UN climate summit in Paris, Fabius, who's a socialist, announced that the talks would hold over for another day and he hoped they'd continue on Saturday. It says the most important divisions appear to be between China, India, and the US. Saudi Arabia is waging a sporadic guerrilla campaign in the text, apparently succeeding in banning the word renewable from the document, with the exception of a single mention in the preamble of deploying renewables as a means of enhancing electricity in Africa. China and India leadership, our leaders, China and India are standing pat in the positions waiting for President Obama to fold. No, they're not. EU nations are wait, uh, watching from the sidelines and wringing their hands. The elites of developing nations and carbon profiteers are salivating over the prospects of fat stacks of redistributed cash. That's your tax money getting put abroad. They're urging the strongest language they can get to ensure the dollars and euros keep flowing. Obama and Secretary of State Kerry want to claim this climate pact as part of their legacy. The main goal is now to attain an agreement with non-binding emission reduction commitments that the President can attempt to join uh, through executive agreement while avoiding Senate ratification. As is China and India are not listed amongst the Annex I developed nations within the UN climate regime, they're hiding behind the UN's principle of differentiated responsibilities, they call it, permitting them to avoid hard commitments and defer any peaking or reduction of the greenhouse gas emissions until fuzzy dates in the future. Well, China had the same thing. China now accounts for 24% of global emissions and India 6.4%. Together, they exceed the combined emissions of the US. 15.5% and the EU is 10.8%. This is a totalitarian agreement, folks. I hope you understand that. Because it literally gives, they give themselves the right to, to thoroughly and heavily indoctrinate all the school children from now on. To be good little Oh, socialists or Nazis, it doesn't matter what you call it, totalitarian systems all have the same thing in common. And it's no coincidence. And you'll have you'll be getting fines galore for not having your thermal home approved and blah, 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 blah. And they'll actually tough you onto the street. That's going to come as well. And because you actually can't afford to upgrade it, and et cetera, et cetera. And if you're in the wrong areas in the country, they want you out anyway. Anyway, that's part of the Agenda 21 agreement. And this article here, two cheers for the Paris Agreement Climate Change. It says the Paris Change Summit, also known as COP21, has adopted a new Paris Agreement. The agreement has the potential to mark a laudable and historic shift in how the world negotiates cooperation on climate change. In other words, redistribute your money from the countries that still have some. To their pals, of course, not to the countries, but to the pals living in those other countries. 
which strengthens the revolutionary movement, you see. It does not justify the over-the-top claims that some are making that it spells the end of fossil fuels or ensures that temperatures will rise no more than two degrees. But those who negotiated it never believed it could, nor does it deserve to be uh, pilloried, uh, a rare but still reaction for failing to save the planet, an entirely unreasonable expectation. Instead, it begins to set up a framework for transparency and review of countries' nationally driven emissions-cutting efforts and a process for encouraging stronger efforts over time. Remember what the purpose of it was from before Morris Strong onwards. Depopulation, folks, and total control over everyone's lives, including sterilization down the road. Don't forget it. Don't ever forget the cons they've used to push the same agenda through. This is why the new architecture makes sense. The world has come a long way from a vision that animated UN climate negotiations from most of the 1990s and 2000s. That vision centered on a firm division between developed and developing countries. Negotiations focused on dividing up responsibility amongst developed countries for cutting emissions and assigned them each targets. Those were to be enforced through international law. And that's the whole key of it. It's law, 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 law. The Paris Agreement is fundamentally different. All countries, not just developed ones, are supposed to curb emissions. Negotiations did not focus on dividing up the responsibility. Instead, each country developed its own plans based on national circumstances. No, the same NGOs are across the world, the municipalities, uh, coalitions of mayors and all the other ones. Uh, have been at work in all these countries doing it all for years and years and years. Never begin a premature revolution. And then you have an article here. Role of Pope Francis is a transformative, that's what it's called, it's a transform, uh, transformation, you see, at Paris COP21 Climate Summit. Now, transformation is a big buzzword they're using now, an institutionalized buzzword. Uh, as we go through the great change, remember change is good, you know, century of change. And our word for it is transformative, you see. As, as negotiations come to a close in Paris and climate change, <laughs> Vatican Radio spoke with Dr. Alison Doig of Christian Aid for Impressions on the event. And Dr. Doig goes on to say, the first week of negotiations were difficult, she said, but progress was made when all groups were included in plenary negotiations. Critical issues still include establishing emission targets and upper limits on warming at between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. Another positive development has been to treat countries on an individual basis instead of as blocks as the category of either rich or developing nations. A critical issue for developing nations is to find ways of dealing financially with the adverse effects of climate change, especially for those countries unable to adapt. And so, everybody's on the act. Everybody's been mobilized and the ground prepared long ago. Never begin a premature revolution. You see? All the superstars of your era have to be on board, and they're all worked out to be just that. And also Episcopal COP21 delegation adds church's voice to climate talks. And it says the Conference of Parties, as it's known, it entered its second week. The delegation representing presiding Bishop Michael B. Curry and the Domestic and Foreign Missionary Society here in the outskirts of Paris, December 7th, sent a letter of thanks and encouragement to the ambassadors of the UN, UN's permanent missions 
of the countries in which the Episcopal Church has a presence. Was that song with God on our side, eh? After the first five days of November 30th, uh, December 11th conference, negotiators representing the 195 signatory countries of the conference of parties in attendance submitted a 48-page draft outlining what could be done or become a binding agreement whereby states would limit greenhouse gas emissions in an effort to keep global warming at or below 2 degrees Celsius. And this is an important piece of the Church's advocacy as it serves as an official record of our positions at this COP. COP, and included the reflections of her delegates at the end of the first week. I wonder if Jesus signed it as well. And and don't think it's it's all just Christians that are all all co-opted here. You've got all the other religions in it too. It's one thing about the revolutionaries. They've always said down through the ages that uh, outsiders, that as they look upon everybody else in the world, are easily corrupted and they all like bribes. And it's a sad truth, you know. It's a sad, sad truth. Anyway, uh, this goes on about the different religion, and this is the Episcopal Church as well, with their green zone, etc. And then climate justice is a matter of faith, it says. Well, you know a lot of faith to believe in it because it's a, big, a bogus con anyway to begin with. Mind you, a con, a good confidence trick, cannot work on the target unless the target participates in their own con. As they're being con, con, you must participate in it, you see, for it to work. And I'll put this one up too, about all the different Canadian churches, Catholics, Mennonites, members of the Christian Reformed, the United Churches, as well as Canadians working with the World Council of Churches. This is some might find their presence in Paris surprising, but they shouldn't. Though Pope Francis' groundbreaking encyclical on the environment and his subsequent calls to world leaders to hear this cries of the earth, oh, oh, screaming out, and the most uh, marginalized among us has drawn unprecedented international attention to climate change. As an issue of faith, it isn't a new perspective. So, in 2011, Canadian faith leaders came together in support of the interfaith call for leadership and action on climate change. Remember what Bernays said? He, says, he said to, to these trainees long ago, don't go in to an area like salesmen going door to door. He says, look for established organizations already. Get the top guy on board and he'll get their flocks to follow. Nothing changes. If it works in the past, it'll work again, you see. And that's really how it is, isn't it? And remember, too, in this new definition of democracy, it's organized groups that get the say in things. If you're an average person, uh, especially if you're, if you're still silly enough to vote, uh, you'll just leave it all to the parties, etc., and your duty is just to vote. And, and that's how you see things. Well, because really, you're, hopefully, you're still an individual. Although you can't really be an individual if you're getting downloaded every day as you sit in front of that TV screen. It's been the biggest brainwasher in history. And that's how it really is, folks. Never forget the initial goals of the totalitarians. Because they have never changed. And they've used many fronts and organizations and many names uh, to, to plaster uh, and cover them up as to what they're really all about. 
in that particular movie I mentioned. You might even find it on YouTube, I don't know, if it's up there. But you'll see and you'll hear some of these totalitarians talking. And it's all about too many folk. What they really mean is the wrong kind of people, you see. You're obsolete, you see, because you're the old worker type and they don't need you anymore. And you're taking up their resources. And as what that woman said, you'll, you'll see the woman I've mentioned too, uh, you'll hear actually saying this, that uh, each person is born, every child born, uh, just gets the, even, going even worse because they now need heat, warm, shelter, food, clothing, and, and various things and so on, commodities, to keep them alive. So you're all the problem, you see. That's what it is. You're the problem. And these self-proclaimed experts that really are revolutionaries with the same agenda, very old agenda, want to run the whole world with an obedient, brainwashed population, trained to jump. And you'll be glad to serve. You'll be glad. You'll be glad to be a slave for the greater good. Yeah, even Rockefeller said something very similar too. You come to them with willing, willingness, basically, and servitude. And that's how the people will be. With, because brainwashing really does work, especially if you get the children young enough and give them the scientifically formulated form of brainwashing at school. We've seen the 20th century with the, the little red book syndrome of Matsy Tongue and all the children parroting this stuff as they waved the little red book. And uh, you, you've seen it all. Hasn't changed. And the indoctrination techniques in the past will always work in the future. Now remember, folks, too, go into cutting3mates.com archives. Help yourself to the knowledge that's there because there's an awful lot over the years I've put into that. And many guys have written books by the information contained within. You can also help me by buying the books and discs at cutting3mates.com or you can donate to me. That's awfully well received here, believe you me, because this is not some mega business running on uh, hyper emotion. It's just the plain, the plain facts. It's not pretty. Uh, I never said it would be pretty. I don't promise you some uh, some last minute reprieve from anything either. But I've really. I've really been in the business of trying to make you keep your individuality because that's, as the United Nations said itself years ago, over and over in fact, that their biggest enemy to this collective society, this world system, is the individual. Remember it, folks. Just say, help me take along here, donate to me, and um, it's really well appreciated. Well, from Hamish, myself, Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.